Welcome to the Transformative Principle. I am your host, Jethro Jones, and you can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. I want to take a minute and invite you to participate in the Transformative Leadership Summit this year. We've got about 30 awesome speakers. Jeff Zolds, John Harper, Mike Anderson, Kyle Palmer, Bill Ziegler, and many, many more. And I'd like to invite you to come and check it out. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be releasing little mini episodes of the Transformative Principle podcast that are highlights from the Transformative Leadership Summit. So you can get an idea of who you're going to be learning from and what you will get from it. So I hope you enjoy it. And thank you so much for listening to the Transformative Principle podcast. Go to transformativeleadershipsummit.com to sign up for that event. It'll be July 31st through August 8th. I always forget to say that. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have Sumant Pendharker on the podcast. For some reason, I'm struggling saying his name, and that's all right. He is forgiving about that. Really a fascinating conversation today where we're going to talk about the different ways to help parents who don't know how to help their kids be successful. And I'm going to warn you, he's going to throw out some uh, ideas that we may not, as educators, be totally on board with. And so there's some different thought processes, and I, I hope you enjoy the conversation. And please reach out to me or reach out to him if you want to talk about those things further. But pretty interesting ideas uh, here. And I got to tell you, his heart is is definitely in the right place of helping kids be successful and especially the idea of finding mentor parents who are educated and successful to help struggling students' parents so that they can be successful and motivated as well. So really interesting conversation. I hope you'll take a moment and share this with another educator who needs a little push to be a little bit better and find some different ways of thinking about things. One of the things I love about this podcast is being able to talk to so many different people with such different ideas and thoughts and opinions. And you'll see that from my interview last week with Terry Barilla and how it's so different from what we're talking about. And that is the reality of education is that there are so many different aspects that we constantly need to be aware of. So thank you so much for listening. And here's my interview. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have Sumant Pendharker on the podcast today. Did I get it right that time? Perfect. You got it. Okay, good. <laughs> it's, it's always a challenge. Well, Sumant, you were born in India and have been in the United States for quite some time. You spent time in, a, in the computer industry and noticed that uh, people struggled as adults because of choices they made as teenagers. And so now you do a lot of work to help families, especially immigrants, raise their kids right and give them the right opportunities. Is that a decent summary of what you do? Yes, and I will add a few more things as we go along as well. Yes, please do at any point. In fact, you have a website called k12counts.org. And can you talk a little bit about what that does? Uh, Sure. The value proposition of K-12 counts is to match a college-educated parent with a parent in the community and teach them effective parenting skills. Which is a wonderful thing that everybody needs, but what makes your focus different? You're specifically focusing on immigrant families, is that correct? This uh, organization is for everybody, but yes, it does focus a whole lot on the immigrant uh, population. They do need help. 
And um, if you don't mind, I'm just going to take a quick minute and do a little bit of an introduction. Please, yes. This K-12 counts is a uh, kind of a profound concept, and I do need to explain that uh, a little bit. I will quickly walk you through my history of the last uh, so many 30 plus years that I've been now in the United States since I came here in 1985 from India. Okay. Uh, is that okay with you? Yes, absolutely. Please. Perfect. So in 85, I came here. I did the usual circuit that a lot of uh, immigrant or students who come to study do. I did my graduate school in computer science. And then I started working in the software industry. And in the mid-90s, during the dot-com boom, I realized that uh, we were mostly hiring foreigners. Now, foreigners is an interesting choice of words because uh, there are a lot of immigrants here. And what really bothered me a lot was we had to hire people from other parts of the world and bring them here on those coveted H-1B visas, which is the source of major controversy even now. And I wonder why is it that when the United States has such fantastic schools and the whole world really comes to study here, why are the local kids not applying for these jobs? And so if I may just interject real quick, why are the local kids not applying for these jobs? You're talking that kids who should have the same ability to be successful, but for whatever reason are not, correct? That's right. Absolutely okay. right. And I'm, I'm going to uh, tell you something else too. I'll just digress as well. My undergraduate degree is in business and finance. And my parents, I had excellent guidance from home. My father worked for Philips, the uh, Dutch electronics company. And even in India, he realized that uh, the whole world is moving towards computers. So instead of my going the traditional CPA and the MBA route, he said, well, you want to consider going doing something in computer science? And think of me from a degree in undergraduate degree in finance to come and do a graduate degree in computer science in the United States. That means all operating systems and data structures and the whole works, changing majors. I will say it was difficult, but it's doable. And so Absolutely. it's fantastic when this country gives you those kind of privileges to come here and change majors and make things happen for yourself. And the, here's the interesting part. Uh, and I've done a lot of research on this. During the heydays of the computer uh, uh, growth in the mid-90s, and these are all published numbers, there was a 42% drop in enrollment in computer science and technology courses between 92 and 98 in the United States. Hmm. The whole world is going towards computers. This computer started here in the United States with IBM and with Sperry, Univac, and all the other players. And the local public here is not going into those kind of jobs or, or training their youth or uh, students to move towards those technology jobs. Yeah, and that's definitely a problem. So what I did was I thought maybe it's a career planning issue. And by the way, I've written, written quite a few technical books as well. And I decided to uh, do something more for mainstream. And so I thought, why not write a career planning book for ages 16 plus? And I, so I started doing that, and I started doing a lot of research. So as part of my research, I talked to folks in the young teens to really grandparents in the 80s, and I asked them, how much guidance did you get at home on your career planning? Do you know the answer, Jethro, to that? Um, I'm guessing very little, sadly. Very little. Negligible, <laughs> if at all any. And I'm talking about various cross-sections of the economic strata. So it has nothing really to do with folks who are super rich. They, of course, super rich people can give more options to their kids. But even those children who grew up in Silicon Valley right here, who are my peers, they did not have that guidance at home. Hmm. Interesting. So if they don't have that guidance at home, they don't really have another place to get it. And the burden for that comes on the schools, I imagine. That's correct. And which I don't agree to. 
it should not be on the schools and um, we'll come to that as well during this whole conversation, I hope, but it doesn't come on, it, it shouldn't be on that, it should be on the parents. The parents are looking at that every day, they're looking around them, and even if they're themselves not in technology, they're perhaps working for somewhere where there is technology in use, right? Yeah, absolutely. And they're seeing these, uh, uh, if you remember that, uh, the book on jobs by Walter Isaacson, I think it was page 42, he wrote, uh, writes that, there were 60 pages of help-wanted jobs or help-wanted ads in the San Jose Mercury News. 60 pages. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. And it still happens. I mean, it's, it's still there's so much more openings for people with uh, computer skills. Okay, let's come back to – so that led me to write a book called uh, Raising Yourself, Making the Right Choices. The book uh, is mostly sold out. If folks want to see it, they can go to hillviewbooks.com and browse the book online. Yep, and I've got a link to that in the show notes. And so the reason I titled the book uh, – okay, so let's go back to the thing of writing a book for 16-plus on career planning. I showed the table of contents to a few of my coworkers, and one of them mentioned that I should write something for ages 10 to 14. And the reason for that is kids in the United States have a lot of, have a lot of choices, and one of the things they do is make decisions for themselves which is rather shocking for me because in most of the Asian countries, the parents raise the children. In the United States, the children have that freedom to make critical choices for themselves, including choices like whether they will finish high school, which really is not something that a choice should be left to the child to make because they don't realize the long-term consequences of dropping out of school, either finishing high school or not, not even finishing high school. Yeah, that's a very real issue. And again, this was a study that was substantiated as well. Somewhere along the way, I came across a link for that, that uh, between the ages of 10 and 14, the children in this country make that decision. And it is a life-altering decision. And of course, fortunately, America is a country of second chances. So somebody can go back to community colleges or go to other colleges and do what they want to do, which is great. But they've lost precious time. And so what I thought about was, so I researched a lot on that book, and my book has now been out for 15 years, Raising Yourself, Making the Right Choices. And here's an interesting thing. That book is for ages 10 to 14. 15 is really stretching it. And can you believe the feedback I've received on the book? The feedback has been from parents and adults telling me to my face or professional reviews which of people that I don't even know that they are learning something from that book. Wow, that's fascinating. And that's what set me on the journey to start K-12 Counts was – if the parents are learning from a book that's age, for ages 10 to 15, what are they doing for their children? Yeah, absolutely. And I have an advantage. I grew up in a different country. I came here when I was already college educated and I was here to study and make a career or whatever for myself. But I see how immigrants can struggle because I can personally relate to that. So why is it that you think that, what is it that makes the parents learn something from this book written for 10 to 14 year olds what is it that they're missing from the feedback i received and plus all the research that i do on this particular topic i feel that a lot of the parents who grew up in this country and uh, let's leave the immigrants aside for a minute let's say those who have come in the last 15 20 30 years they did not get that guidance at home and so when they are raising their children they are unable to transfer that knowledge and say, we expect you to go to college. We expect you to have this career. So that is a big issue. In the last few years, I've asked this question randomly to folks. How much guidance did you get at home? And I'm now talking about folks who are born and brought up in this country, in the, and I specifically picked folks who are 50 plus. 
I wanted to know how, because my history in this country is since, only since 1985. So I wanted to know what happened before. And I asked my neighbor, she's 75 years old, and I asked her, well, I won't say her name, but how much guidance did you get at home? And she says, zero. I grew up in a middle-class family. We had everything that we wanted uh, and more, but my parents never set any expectation that you will go to college. And I've heard this repeatedly. And I've heard this from, again, from various economic strata. And do you think that that is still the the case? Or do you feel like people are now saying much more often that they are getting giving guidance to kids or getting guidance as kids now come into college? Because it seems like, to me, that we're saying go to college like everywhere. So it seems like that message is being stated loud and clear. I feel that that message is said loud and clear more in media than it is said actually in person to a student or to a child. So there's a lot of conversation uh, all over the place about children should study or go to college, but I'm not sure how well it's translating down to the level of for the students themselves. And I'm going to share a couple of things with you as well. I was um, at a community college and I was speaking to a a student, just just casually asked him, uh, so what are you doing? What are your plans for the future? He says, well, I didn't know that SAT and ACT was important, so I never really gave those. And now I'm trying to figure out what I need to do as my next steps. And I was thinking, really? And he's only, what, must be about 18 or 19. I'm sorry, I didn't ask him for his age. But if he's, let's assume he's 20 or just thereabouts. Why didn't he not know that? And I don't blame the school system on this. I'm actually appalled at how much everybody, including society, public, and parents, expect the schools to do. This is not for the schools to do. This is for the parents to say, set the expectations at home. So if parents need to be saying this, how do we help parents know they should be saying this if they don't know themselves? So let's take a step back. I've also wanted to bring something else on this particular conversation, too, and that is a lot of the schools don't have, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, do not have an exit exam. They don't That's have uh, a graduation exam. Yep. In I forget the full form of OECD, but they do the on, uh, annual country ranking in education, uh, and they have a PISA, P-I-S-A, uh-huh. uh, ranking. And I believe the U.S. is somewhere in the 15 to 25, somewhere in that range. I did an informal study of the schools which are on the top, and that's uh, all the Finland and Singapore and the, some of the other U- European countries. Every one of those places has an exit exam. And that exit exam is very important because it's a benchmark. It tell, it's a goal that a student should go for. If they can get their GED or whatever after a few years, this, it's like a moving deadline. It's like my learning Spanish. I don't absolutely need it. I'm learning it, but I've been learning it for the last two years. I don't have a deadline. And there's some more stuff as well for this, the benchmark exam. I know the schools get uh, dinged for not performing. I don't agree to that. I think it's the parents who are not performing and the students who are not performing. And in any organization, whether it's a private sector, the government, or the school system, and I'm just speaking on all these three as a kind of a white benchmark, in every organization, they're competent and incompetent or not so great people. But it doesn't mean that everybody's incompetent. So just to say that the school system is not working is not correct. And now let me share this with you. When I founded K-12 Counts about a year and a half ago, and Jethro, please feel free to uh, interrupt because I may be on a soapbox, so jump in, please. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. I certainly will. Okay, thank you. K-12 Counts, we have a team of five folks. We have three teachers who have either retired or still working. Out of those three teachers, two teachers are fluent in Spanish. We spent more than a year at a high school in San Jose. In San Jose, California, 
And at times, there were five of us waiting in a room. We had already posted our hours that we we're going to be there every Wednesday from four to six. How many parents show up? Zero. What is the school's ranking? And this is based on the old ranking with the API scores, two on 10. We did a, a survey with every parent and asked these parents who signed up. There were 11 of them that signed up to work with K-12 counts. And this is for free. They get all this help for free. And we did this. We asked them those questions about how their children are doing, where they need help and all that. And these are parents who clearly said our children need help. They're high schoolers. Not, this is a high school, right? And so we said, okay, fine. We'll find you the tutor help. We'll find you, uh, help them with their career planning. Just show up. Did they show up? They did not show up. And this is one-on-one attention with it, within the language with which they're comfortable. How can these parents turn around and say, the school is failing us? Yeah. So then the question becomes, and we get this a lot in education, that we have parents who know their kids are struggling and then the parents don't come to parent-teacher conferences or things like that. So why why don't parents come when they know they need that help? I have again asked these parents too, and they some of them don't feel comfortable because they themselves did not attend school or they went to second, third, fourth, fifth grade. But frankly, that's not a reason enough for them not to show up. And I was going to leave this for the conclusion because I know you have a favorite question to ask, but I'm going to say that here and I will say that again perhaps at the conclusion. And that is the school system should assign a portion of the grade, maybe 20%, 30% to a parent showing up on the school campus at least once or twice in a year and make that some kind of an incentive because there's nothing else that seems to be bringing these parents to the school. So tie it into the student performance. Is this a little too radical to say on your show? <laughs> Not too radical to say on my show. However, I know there will be pushback on that. So how will that help? Because part of the problem is that the parents aren't coming because their kids are already failing. So how will penalizing them even more help them want to come in at that point? Yeah, so that's a little bit of a soft push that I'm saying. I mean, I can say that so hard to you on this phone because we are uh, professional, then we can say this. But if we have to, there's that whole incentive that if you show up, you get this much at least. There are other, and I'll talk to you more about that as well, but main thing is the parents must show up. It's not enough for them to drop them at the outside of the gate, if at all, and then just leave for the day and then expect a scholar in the evening. It doesn't work that way. There's a mindset change that has to happen. And unless that happens, the education system here is going to forever have this challenge. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm going to digress, and I actually wrote a LinkedIn blog post on this. Uh, about 10 years, 10, 12 years ago, I was in Singapore and I have a friend and I normally stay at his house when I'm on my way to India or back, back to the US. And there was a screaming headlines at the Strait Times. How do we get Singaporeans to think for themselves? Here's a country that's known as a nanny state and it's an official term. So I'm not really, you know, just using a broad brush on them, but they are officially called a nanny state. Mm-hmm. Because if somebody else does the thinking for them and they're, have you been to Singapore? It's a fantastic country, really. No, I've been to Russia and Finland and that's it. Incredibly well organized. Incredibly well. So here's a headline 10 to 14 years ago. How do we get Singaporeans to think for themselves? Because they've been spoon fed all their life and their country's exports are now changed from just having, they had a duty-free shopping and some other ways in which they used to generate business. But that has now changed. They need technology to come in and they need the local population to step up to the plate. So what did they do? They built the biohub or a biopolis. Are you familiar with that? Uh, no. Tell me more about that. So uh, the Singapore government gave six to seven billion, that's with a B, 
dollars to powers to be and said, we need to be a biotech hub uh, in this whole Asian region. And so make it happen. So those folks who were chartered with creating the Biopolis, and I'll send you a link to that uh, after our show as well, went ahead. They actually came to the U.S. and they raided the universities in the United States. They went up to uh, well-known professors in, uh, you know, molecular biology, whatever, all sorts of DNA and uh, stuff like that, and put a blank paper in front of them and said, come work and set up a lab. We'll give you unlimited money. We'll give you whatever you want. Just come to Singapore and set up a lab. Now, traditionally for professors in the United States or in a lot of other countries as well, they have to do fundraising and they have to get grants and they have to do all sorts of stuff. If I give you a $10 million or $50 million line of credit and say, do whatever you want, no questions asked, set up a lab. What do you think you're going to do? Get up and leave and you'll go to Singapore and set up their biopolis. 10 to 12 years ago when I was in Singapore and I read that headline in Straits uh, Times, my friend's daughter was at the time maybe about 10 or 12 years old. She's 20 plus now, and she works at the Biopolis. Incredible transformation in a country that decided that they will do something and made it happen. Now, I'm not saying that people overnight change and they suddenly become biologists and they become scientists. But if the country provides them with employment or provides them labs where people can experiment or the students or the young adults can do that, it opens doors for them. Yeah. What I want to say here on this show is, and I'm truly grateful to you for inviting me because this is a fabulous forum that I can get across to, uh, to principals and educators. Please take a bold stand and bring about a change. Really bring, bring about that change with the help of the community, and that means the parents and the students as well. And as far as the, the parents are concerned, let me share, since this conversation was to be more around immigrants, let me share that with you as well. There are essentially, effectively, at least two sets of uh, immigrants. One is the educated and aware. And the other ones are lesser educated and those who struggle to get assimilated into the system. So, and, and so the second, the latter batch also have a hard time understanding how the credit system works and they get into the debt and they get into payday loans and they get into all sorts of things, which really is, you know, holds them back. Yeah. The language level of both the groups oftentimes is same. I work in Silicon Valley. I mean, I hear every possible language here. And I know for a fact, because from personal experience, that a lot of my peers... They have come here educated or they've come here with a drive and they are the aware immigrants. They network and find answers for their children and get the kids to perform well. The other group struggles. And so K-12 Counts is working more with the latter group. So language is not an issue. It's the attitude to say that, look, I need to do something for my kids. Other kids are doing better. Yeah, so if if language isn't the issue, that's where we typically go. We offer parent language classes in some schools and make sure that there's translators and things like that. If, if attitude is the issue, how do you change that attitude so that people will be more engaged in the process? Seriously make an announcement uh, nationwide that there will be high school exit exams or graduation uh, exams five years or six years out from now, and you need to get your kids ready. And we will offer, schools will offer what they're offering right now. Plus, there's so many nonprofits around who are willing to help. But there should be a stake in the ground in saying, this is the deadline for this, and this is what we're going to do. This is the only country in the world where I don't see a, uh, a sense of urgency with the, with the parents or the kids. 
and I don't see them having some kind of a benchmark that they should shoot for. And this, this, what I'm sharing with you is based on extensive travel in Europe and Asian countries. I have not been to South America as much to comment on, uh, on them. Huh. So that's really fascinating. So that was a great interview. And as you can hear, uh, Sumant has some very great ideas, grandiose ideas. And certainly taking a bold stand is an important thing to do. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. Next week, I'm going to continue the conversation. We're going to talk a little bit more about how to support kids with resources that are already there. And he's going to share his uh, article about why the Atlanta teachers cheated and why probably everybody else would also. And, you know, that's a very fascinating discussion that I've spoken about just a little bit, and I talk a little bit more about that here. So thank you so much for listening, and uh, please share this with someone else, and thanks for your time. Transformative Principles is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcast for educators by educators. Visit edupodcastnetwork.com for more great podcasts.